Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. And this is John Simon. Today we're going to pick up where we left off. We had already recorded session one on taking the deposition of a corporate representative. We're back with more. Welcome back. You know, sometimes I find that on corporate rep depositions, the the objections tend to be, what topic are you addressing right now? In other words, they want to know what topic this is. Like you're supposed to announce your topic before you ask questions on the topic. Is that fair in, in your experience? The answer to that is really simple. There's good case law out there that says you're entitled to ask any question you want of that witness. You don't need to limit your questions to the subject matter in the corporate rep notice. You can ask them personal stuff. You can ask them about their credibility. You can ask them if they've ever been arrested before, if they've ever spent time in prison, if they've been convicted of a felony. None of those things are in the notice, but they're all fair game because this person is giving testimony under oath. So the, the case law out there basically says if it's decided that what you asked was beyond the scope of the corporate rep notice, all that means is the witness's testimony, the company's not bound by the witness, the witness's testimony on that subject. And that's something that doesn't need to be determined in the deposition. For instance, if you're asking questions in a corporate rep notice, the other side says, wait, hold on a second. That's not in the notice. That's beyond the notice. Well, the answer is that's fine. Whether it is or isn't is not something we need to decide now. The court can decide that later. And at a later date, if the court decides that that testimony was outside the scope, then your remedy is the company's not bound by it. But if the court decides that it is, then you're bound by it. But certainly it doesn't preclude you from asking questions beyond the scope of the, of the notice. There are many cases out there on that. You have an absolute right to take that witness's deposition in a personal context. You have an absolute right under the rule to take a corporate rep notice. You didn't pick the witness, they did. And then you have an absolute right to take that witness's individual deposition. So I asked the other lawyer, okay, that's fine. If, if you don't want the witness to answer that question, we'll redepose him at another date and go through all the things. It's just ridiculous. When that objection is made, it's beyond the scope. I mean, here, here's the thing, Eric, if somebody says, what topic is that? You can tell them, and probably that's the better thing to do, but really what difference does it make? You're not limited in your questions to what's in the notice. You can ask the witness anything. You can ask him where he grew up, what his early childhood family was like, what kind of work he's done through the course of his career. A lot of things that you can ask, but you're not chained to that corporate rep notice. And I think people need to understand that. Yeah. I'm tempted sometimes to just say, hey, look, I'm, I would invite you to make a running objection that all my questions are beyond the topics. You know, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead and just every question I ask, you can, yeah. we'll deem that you have made that objection right. Right. and it will sort right. it out later. This isn't a problem just with corporate rep depositions. It's a problem with expert depositions, really a lot, all depositions. And that is you send the corporate rep notice out, you request the documents be provided, even in an expert depot. And then all of a sudden, and this, this happens way more often than it should, the night before at, at 6.30, you know, after most people are home, you get emailed. You know, in the old days, they'd have to deliver a package. And all of a sudden, you get 32,000 pages of documents dumped on you 12 hours before the deposition or the night before the deposition. I've had situations where it happened in expert depots, and I'll actually ask the expert, when, when did you provide these materials to the other attorney? And they'll say, oh, three weeks ago. And you've asked for it four or five times. And I have some attorneys, most attorneys 
are, are very cooperative and we try to do the same thing. We provide file materials for a deposition, say three or four days before, and we ask the other side to do the same thing and it all works out. Yet there are a handful of attorneys or law firms that it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. No matter how often you ask, even if you produce your materials ahead of time, you get the same thing. So here's, here's what I've done to solve that problem. It has worked for me, I think, every time. If I know it's somebody that's going to dump a bunch of documents on me the night before or even the morning, the morning of the deposition, what I'll do is two, three weeks before the deposition, I will, in writing, say, look, we'd like to get these materials beforehand. We will accommodate you by doing the same thing. It'll save everybody's time. It will prevent any inconvenience of you, your client, or the witness. And then in that same email or or letter email primarily, I'll say, look, if we don't get the documents ahead of time, what's going to happen is it's going to delay the start of the deposition. And so what I do is, and I say, certainly we don't want to inconvenience you or your witness or your client or the other lawyers involved in the case. And so what will happen then is the morning of the deposition, sure enough, even though we sent email requesting it, we'll get 3,000 pages of documents dumped on us. What I will do is go on the record in the deposition and let everybody know we asked this, here's the email. And unfortunately, everybody, there's going to be a significant several hour delay to the start of the deposition so that we can review these documents we can organize these documents and we can actually mark them as deposition exhibits. And so if it's nine o'clock and the depot is supposed to start at nine, I'll say, look, I think this is probably going to take till about two in the afternoon. So all of you can go on a long walk or get an early lunch or a late breakfast or go out on a picnic, whatever you want to do. But we're just not starting the deposition without having reviewed the documents. Okay. And that's what I do. And you do that one time and you'll get the documents next time. I hate to work under that kind of pressure, 3,000 documents, and even with three hours, how often do you just call the deposition and say, we'll come back a different day? It doesn't happen that often that we have to even threaten to do that. I think you're way better off looking at the documents or reviewing them. But if it's a corporate rep, it might be the only time you're getting to depose the corporation on that issue or those issues. Mm -hmm. So I think under those circumstances, you might be better off actually canceling the deposition. If it's an expert or if it's a witness, not a corporate rep, you know, you have an opportunity to look at the documents and explore the documents with other witnesses later. Yeah. The reason I say that is sometimes there's a key document or two that just happens to be in a huge pile. So it's like uh, challenging you to find the needle in the haystack under time pressure. And I don't like that at all, especially if you set them up by telling them, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not doing it to intentionally cancel or delay the start of the deposition. If it's something you can look at quick, we'll go ahead and look at it. And the other thing, too, you always need to figure out why. I mean, there may, they may have a good reason why they couldn't provide you the documents until the last minute. And certainly you want to you know, give them an opportunity to explain that. But as I said, nine times out of 10, we don't have any problem at all. We agree to exchange documents ahead of time. It makes life easier for everybody. And that's really what should be done. So, Eric, let me ask you this. Should you videotape the deposition? Can it hurt? Uh, probably not. Can it help? Quite often. I like watching the way people answer questions. I know you used an example from one of my depositions in the past. It was a corporate rep deposition where the fellow was asked to read an arbitration clause that was 400 words long, and he it was in eight-point type, and he kept skipping lines, and he said that consumers should be able to read and understand something that he could not either read or understand. And so that was that was gold for me to 
have that videotaped so we could play that back and show a judge that it's ridiculous to expect consumers to be able to read and understand something that a highly trained corporate officer could not read or understand. But sometimes the way the answer comes out is really good for your case. I videotape every corporate rep deposition, period, w without exception, and for the reasons that you, you just uh, described. You and I have talked in the past on this program about nonverbal communication and how much we convey by our gestures, body language, facial expressions. And I think there's statistics out there that way less than 50% of our communication is, is verbal. It's the nonverbal communication, you know, evasiveness, whether somebody's being honest, whether they're being credible, how they're looking at you, their facial expression, how they're sitting in the chair, they cross in their arms. And so I think it's important to videotape any, any corporate rep deposition. I do the same thing with, with experts. Eric, let me bring this up. What's a good way when the witness just keeps saying, I don't know? Not just, I don't know in a corporate rep deposition, because they're really saying the corporation doesn't know. But what do you do when a witness has been prepped to say, I don't know, or worse, not answering the question? I mean, you've asked the same clear, specific question seven times, and instead of answering it, they go on a, a sermon or a speech about something not related, where you keep asking the same question, and they just don't answer the question, and they've been prepped not to answer the question, and you're not getting an answer to the question. Do you think a car company should test their vehicles? Something like that. <laughs> and, and I've asked uh, something similar seven, eight, 15 times in a deposition, should the company have tested this vehicle for this issue? And they talked to me about all the other testing that they did. John, okay, you're, acting, and, you're, you're acting so innocent. Like that's, a, that's an easy question to answer. Should a car company test their vehicles? You, you know what's going to happen and they see it coming and that's why they don't want to answer it because they're buying into a simple principle that everybody agrees to and you're going to use it on closing argument. Right. They don't want to answer that. And so they'll do anything they can not to answer those kinds of questions. That's the red flag where they didn't prepare for the deposition. In other words, the corporation didn't present somebody that they were under a duty to present by the rule, somebody who did know things about this topic. So in that case, you, you want to circle the witness and establish that they did not prepare or that the corporation did not give them the right information. And therefore, it may be a motion to compel. It may be a motion for sanctions if it goes on enough times in a deposition. For instance, you might have a case where there's a particular component or part or issue where they didn't test on it. And so they just don't want to answer it. And again, I've asked questions four, five, six, seven times, and you get the same speech about something unrelated, but they just won't. And, and then you get asked and answered, you know, asked and answered, which even a little more frustrating because you have asked it before, but you sure, sure as heck they didn't answer it. It's called asked and evaded. That's the new objection. There. Right. Asked and evaded. So what I do, and this works in a corporate rep depot, and it works in a an expert depot. And what I do after trying to get them to answer the question is I will say, okay, look, here's what the position we're going to take. You're here as a representative of the company. You are here specifically to address certain topics that we've identified. And you're presented here to address this specific topic. As much as you may disagree, I think the record will show that you didn't answer the question. It's a very simple question. Let's say it's about testing. It's an automobile product case, and you ask a simple question, should car companies test the strength of their roofs and rollovers, period. If you, as the corporate representative, are not willing to answer a question on this topic, on this subject, 
we're taking the position that you're not allowed to address it at all whatsoever, not from the company, not from any experts. In other words, we're not going to hear one word of evidence from you on that topic at trial. And most often when I've done that, after a little bickering, we'll get a break. The defense attorney will take the witness outside and lo and behold, they'll come back in and they'll be able to answer the question. So I think that's one way to leverage yourself by saying, look, you're here to address these issues. If you're refusing to address these issues, I take it to mean that you're abandoning them and we're not going to hear anything about it at trial. Sometimes it's worthwhile giving, I hate to say it this way, like an English lesson. If your question is simple, sometimes I'll go back and I'll say, okay, I want to make sure that we're communicating right. So the question was, does your corporation do testing as far as roof strength regarding rollovers? Is there any word in that sentence that you're not understanding? Like the word testing or roof or rollovers, or we hung up on the terminology I'm using. And it's usually you can get it down to a really simple question. Sometimes I've asked, are, are you refusing to answer my question? Are you trying to not understand my question? And I'll say, no, no, no. What if your mother walked in the room and said, does your corporation test roof strength for rollovers? Would you tell her that you don't understand what that question means? Or would you have an answer? to? And sometimes it's like a shaming, but usually some prodding like that. And this kind of thing often works. And it's the big advantage of a corporate deposition over interrogatories, because you have these games being played often in interrogatories, and they play out at glacial speed. It's like 60 days later, you get the objection. Another 60 days later, you're finally in front of a judge and all that. Well, within a couple of questions, you can push, push, push. And like you're saying, remind them of the consequences for not answering the question. And then things happen. Well, quite often, they, things, good things do happen. I agree. Another thing we see a lot is, especially with experts, but, but also with corporate reps, you will ask a question and the witness will repeat your question in the answer and rephrase it, modify it, add some language to it, make it more specific, and then say no to it because their response made your question more narrow and more specific. I have my question written down. I'll point it out. I'll say, look, you've added some language to my question that, is, that isn't in it. That's not the question that I've asked. My question's a little different. It's this, and you read it again. So you try to get them off of it. If you're an expert witness or a corporate rep, there are consequences to not answering questions. And if they know that there are consequences, I think you're going to get your answers. So, Eric, what do you do when, when the witness is clueless? The witness isn't being evasive. The witness is, is trying to answer the questions. You, you think they're being honest. They appear to be credible but they just don't know a damn thing. I mean, they just weren't prepared. They just don't know anything. Uh, all of these topics, it's a situation where it looks like they pulled somebody off the street or somebody they picked the person who's least knowledgeable about these issues and sat them down in a deposition. What do you do then? First of all, do they understand the question? I keep wanting to make sure that the question is clear. It may be my fault. Maybe the question is not perfectly clear to them. Once I've established that the meaning of the question is clear and they understand the meaning of the question and they can't answer it. And if it's a topic, if it's clearly within a topic, now you got to go to work, right? You got to put your other hat on. It's kind of your uh, circle the witness and lock them in type questions where you want to establish that they know this is a topic, that they knew that they had a duty to prepare to answer that topic. And then 
what did they do to prepare for this topic? Right. And if they don't have an answer to that, well, then the light goes on and you go, they failed. The defendant failed to properly prepare a witness for this topic. So that's one approach. Yeah. I see that, believe it or not, fairly often where somebody shows up and you ask them a few questions about their background. It might be your deposition is related to surgical procedures involving heart issues at a, at a hospital or facility or credentialing, and they'll pick a low-level nurse in the orthopedic department to come in who's, who's never worked in the other department, and they just don't know anything about the, the case. They don't know anything about the, the subject matter you're asking for. It may be that when the defense attorney gets your notice, they're going to go, oh, this is a hell of a lot of work. I got to find somebody who's going to be willing to sit long hours with me and prepare. And I think this stuff rolls downhill sometimes until it gets to the person who can't say no. And then that bingo, you're it. You're the witness. And then uh, they do the best they can. Sometimes it's a, this person is trying hard to present the position of the corporation, but they don't have the horsepower. They don't have the bandwidth as far as the topic. They needed somebody higher up who really understands the process better. So you've got a low quality witness, not because they're bad people. It's just because they weren't the right people who could explain the topic. And that violates the rule. The corporation is supposed to, according to the rule, present somebody who can give answers regarding questions regarding a topic, not just a canned answer where they just say a thing and then they're done. They need to be able to sit there and intelligently discuss the topic, at which point you can call a pause to the deposition and have a discussion about we need somebody else who can actually answer this. I agree with you, Eric. And I think one of the things, though, in addition you need to do is you need to make a record to show the court that this person is the least capable, just not not able to to answer the question. In the deposition, you want to talk to the individual about their background, their training, their education, what their role was in the company, and then flat out go through the topics. Do you know anything about this? What were you given to review? Not just where they worked, their background and experience at the company, but co concentrate on what they did or didn't do to prepare themselves for this deposition. Did you ever look at the notice? I've had witnesses in corporate rep depots who never saw the notice that we sent. Did you review any documents? Did you talk to any other employees of the company? So I think first what you want to do is you want to make a very good record to show that this witness was not properly prepared to respond to the corporate rep notice. No, no question. But I think secondly, and this, this should get everybody's attention, what, what I do when that happens is I will ask the witness, do, are you able to provide me with any information about this topic? Well, no. Is there someone at the company who knows more about that? Sometimes you'll get a yes. Sometimes they'll say, I don't know. I don't know who can tell you about that. I have no idea. We don't know. I don't know. And so what I do is I'll just go up the chain at the company. Whoever that person is, if they're working in a particular department, I'll say, who's the head of your department and who do they report to? And if we ask that gentleman or woman, would we get an answer? And I'll take it all the way up to the president or CEO of the company and say, well, Mr. Witness, let me ask you this. If we ask Mr. CEO uh, about these issues, certainly he'd, he'd be in a position to find out who has the most information and knowledge. In other words, push it upstairs a little bit. If you provide the alternative of taking the deposition of the CEO on these issues or having the other attorney actually produce somebody with knowledge, I think they're going to produce somebody. That sounds like a good a good approach to, to lock it all in because it, it, it may end up in front of a judge and the judge needs a record. Sometimes that is a tactic, I think, where, you know, for whatever reason, as you said, it might be uh, 
not being prepared or lazy or whatever it is, or it just might be a tactic where they don't want you to get the information where somebody shows up and they're clearly not prepared to address the issues in the corporate rep notice. They're just not. And they'll admit it on the record. I don't know anything about that. Other people know more than me. I didn't look at anything. I didn't even read the notice. And under those circumstances, you make your record and take it up with the court. Yeah. You would think at that point, once you've established those things, your opposing counsel would just say, why don't we reschedule this deposition? I'll get you something better, someone different for this topic. That should be it. Right. So Eric, the next issue that I want to kick around a little bit is what do you want to accomplish in the deposition? What are your goals for the corporate rep deposition? I've got sort of a list of things that I try to do at the corporate rep depot because, you know, you got to remember this is a great opportunity. You are actually taking a deposition of the corporation on all of these issues. Whatever they say is binding on the corporation. If they make an admission, it's admitted for the purposes of the case, admit certain facts in the case to narrow the issues. Here's some of the things that I try to accomplish in the deposition. First of all, elements of the case. What are the four or five things? Look at the verdict director and the instructions. What are the four or five things that we need to prove in this case to make our case? What are the elements of my case from a legal standpoint? Is it the right defendant? Did the defendant design the product? Did they manufacture the product? Did they sell the product? Was your client using the product at the time? You know, if it's a medical malpractice case, was my client there for treatment? Did you undertake to provide treatment? The treatment that was provided was in the course and scope of your employment of the hospital. Whatever it is, get those issues out of the way. In addition to elements of the case, I also go through the facts of the case. In other words, there are a lot of facts in the case that just aren't disputed. And you still need to produce evidence. But what I do with the corporate rep is find out what their understanding of the case is. And then I'll go through and is it disputed by the company that my client was a patient? Is it disputed by the company the car rolled over two times? So that you really go through the list of facts in the case and you find out which ones that you need to argue or fight about and which ones are agreed to. That's a good point. Let's say that you could subpoena somebody into trial and you could establish these facts at trial. Why do it? Why wait? You know, if you have 20 facts and this corporate rep will admit 15 of them, you just made the trial a lot shorter and then you took away the risk that the person you subpoenaed doesn't show up or died or got sick or, you know, any, anything, any number of things can happen at trial. Why not get that all out of the way as best you can? Yeah. And then same with admissions. You send out requests for admissions. Well, guess what? Those are all fair game at a corporate rep deposition. Go through those admissions. And a lot of times you'll get objections or not very clear admissions or denials when you send out a request for admission. So you should explore those with the corporate rep. Go over them with the corporate rep. Again, narrow the issues. Let me give you an example. We have a surgical implant case where we're alleging that there should have been a warning and there wasn't. So when we take the corporate rep notice, what are we going to ask? We're going to say, well, okay, was it your product? Did you make it? Did you design it? Did you sell it? And by the way, was there a warning? They may agree that we didn't give a warning. So you narrow the issue. So the issue in the case is not whether you gave a warning, but the issue is should you have given a warning? A lot of times with a corporate rep deposition, narrow your case literally down to a single issue. A lot of times or sometimes the facts of the underlying case aren't really disputed. Your only dispute might be whether the defendant should have done something different or whether they should have done something in addition, a warning that was never sent, a test that was never done. I'm thinking about the you know, the citizens who have to sit in the, in the jury box, they're giving up their time, their jobs, time with their family and all, all that kind of thing. So this should always be on our mind that if we can turn a, an eight day trial into a four day trial, 
we should always do that, always, just to be respectful of the time of the jurors and also to, to move the case forward quickly because pulling this stuff out of witnesses at trial can be much harder. You might not get the clean answer. You can get it with a lot of back and forth. Some of these questions might take a while in a deposition. It might take three or four or five questions to get the final answer out. Well, then, of course, you just read the final answer to the jury. Is here's, here's what the corporate rep said. And if you can shorten that trial, keep the jury's attention span on the real issues that do matter, that's really important for you. It, it keeps the jury's attention on the important matters at trial. It shows you where you need to spend your effort, your energy, and your resources. If it really comes down to a single issue, think about doing your opening in the case. You know, ladies and gentlemen, here, this, 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 and everything I've told you is not disputed in this case. They agree with that, and we agree with it. All the parties agree on these issues. There is a single issue that will be given to you for your determination, and that issue is not did they warn, but should they have warned, a single-issue case. And that really allows you to, as I said, simplify it, which is always good for the plaintiff, but also shows you where you really need to put your effort, your resources, your creativity on that particular issue. Another topic that I cover all the time with the corporate rep, standard of care. If you're taking a corporate rep of an automobile manufacturer and you are arguing in that case that they were negligent, that's fair game. Ask them, what should a car company do? What kind of tests should they run? What kind of warning should they give? What kind of design should they consider? How strong should their roof be? Are there standards in the industry that should these standards be followed? Are there regulations, you know, that need to be followed as a matter of law? Now, you might get an objection. Well, you know, calls for the ultimate issue. Well, it's okay. They can talk about the ultimate issue. I can guarantee you they're going to have witnesses at trial saying we weren't negligent. We followed all the rules. and We did everything right. And so if they don't want to answer that question or discuss that issue with you, again, it goes back to the same thing we said. Look, if you're telling me that we're not going to hear any evidence from you as, as to whether or not what you did was reasonable, we'll stop and move on to another topic. Company information. A lot of times, if you're suing a big, well-known company, Apple, Facebook, whoever you're suing, one of the car companies, everybody knows who they are. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, you've got a company and you need information about where they're located, what other products they sell, how long they've been selling them, how many employees they have, their locations. And that's all good information to get through the corporate rep. Competitor information. It's a great source of information about who are your competitors? Who are the top three? What products do you compete with those competitors on? And what that does is it allows you to get online and find out what other competitors' products look like. Look at their warnings. Are they the same? Are they different? Look at the design. Is the design same? Is it different? The key, key thing in any deposition, but especially a corporate rep depot, get names of other people at the company with knowledge. Let's find out who they are, what they do, what's their title, what are their responsibilities. And that way you've got a list. It might be 20 people. It might be 25. It might be five or 10. And you don't need to depose every one of them, but you might, you might want to. But it allows you, as we were talking about before, to pick two or three or four key players and get their deposition so that you're picking who is going to be a witness at your trial, not the defendant. I'm thinking again, compare it to written discovery. This is essentially a chance to have a lifetime rapid fire request for admissions, rapid fire interrogatories, and wherever there's hesitation or evasion or reluctance, you can push it forward. Sometimes you can just push and shove and cajole these people into giving real answers. The power of this tool to get all this done in one session that might be three, four, five, seven hours is so important. Another thing, too, is, is 
not just the knowledge of people, the names of people with knowledge or information, but the identity of documents. That is so key in almost every case. I don't care what kind of case it is. Companies don't do things without documenting them. They document everything. If it's a truck company, they hire somebody, there's a personnel file. And so the corporate rep deposition should not only get names of people with information or folks who are most knowledgeable about certain issues, but find out during whatever process you're talking about, if it's a design, if it's the testing of a product, if it's the hiring of a truck driver, whatever it is, if it's the credentialing of a surgeon, ask about that process. Put that in your corporate rep notice and say, what does that process consist of? Who's involved in it? And what does each person do? And then go through the course of that process and say, tell me during the course of that process, what documents are created? What are they called? How long are they kept? Who keeps them? And then what you do at the end of the deposition is you've got a nice list of individuals who you want to depose. And then more importantly, or or as important, you've got documents you know they have, you know they keep them, you know they can access them, and you request those specific documents. You sometimes send out a subpoena for a custodian of the business records of somebody, of some corporation. And it's like a mini corporate rep deposition on one topic or just a couple topics. And you'd cover exactly those topics that you just mentioned. How are these records prepared? Who keeps them? How are they kept? It's not called a corporate rep deposition. It's just a subpoena that goes out and people tend to respect these. But that's exactly right. You can tuck that into your corporate rep deposition and it may be a different witness someone from the IT department or somebody else that has to do with the records. But big organizations cannot thrive with people just trying to remember things. So there often are records, and it's often a very technical, elaborate system for obtaining the information, recording the information, preserving the information. How do we retrieve the information? And it's a often something that's way out of the wheelhouse of other witnesses who are knowledgeable about other things of the corporation. This is a specialty area about how these records are maintained. John, what point do you typically take a corporate rep deposition? How far into the case before you take that? It depends. If it's something like a truck crash, you might take it a little earlier to find out information about other accidents or the the driver or the driver's personnel file, things like that. In the more complex cases, product cases, maybe medical malpractice cases, I like to have the issues a little more well-defined, at least after the written discovery is done, maybe after a few fact witnesses are done, because you get one shot at the corporate rep deposition, and you want to make it count. You want to make it comprehensive. So I tend to do it a little later in the course of the case, a little later in the discovery process when all of the issues are a little more well-defined. How often do you need more than the seven hours, more than a one-day session? I rarely go over the seven hours. We might break it up. Now, I don't know. I guess does the rule, if they produce five witnesses, does the seven hours get split between the five witnesses? Or are they considered, was that considered one deposition, two depositions? There's federal law by several courts, at least, that have suggested that if there's multiple witnesses, you consider those multiple seven-hour sections. That's why that uh, defense attorney article I mentioned in the beginning, they, they have as one of the suggestions, try to have one witness show up. So they force you into a one, one so session. I'm, I'm laughing, Eric, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking strategically, what I do then is I'll notice up a corporate rep depot and the subject matter will be merely identify each person who's most knowledgeable on each of these topics. <laughs> 
So then I can go ahead and notice their depositions. That option does exist if there's multiple witnesses that are designated. Not that you necessarily know it, because there's no duty in Missouri law to say how many people will sit for that corporate rep deposition. I think that's why this rule exists. This is in federal court. is It's effective on December 1 unless it's been rejected by Congress. But it says before or promptly after the notice or subpoena is served on a corporate rep deposition, the serving party and the organization must confer in good faith about the matters for examination. And I think that the reason for this is clear. Anybody who's done more than a few of these knows that it essentially never happens that you will send a notice of corporate rep deposition with a list of topics and the other side will say, good, see you on, you know, in three weeks. Right. It's just, it's almost never happens. And there's almost always snags. So the rule now says in federal court, or it looks like it's going to say that you need to have this good faith conference to figure out these snags. I guess that's another good point. And when I send a corporate rep notice with all of these different topics, I never put a date in it. My first notice that I send to the other side merely says, here are some topics that we need addressed. After you've looked at the topics and you've decided who it is that you're going to have address them, let's talk about a date for the deposition. Or alternatively, I'll put a date in and say, look, I just arbitrarily picked this date, but I understand you're going to need to figure out who you're going to produce. So let me know when they're available. This gives me the opportunity to mention one more case. This is in Missouri, a case called Kingsley versus Kingsley. And what happened is that there was a deposition. This was not a corporate rep. This was just a deposition. And what happened is that the person to be deposed, the attorney for that person to be deposed, simply filed a motion to quash, but never took it up. And I've seen this before. In a motion to quash, it just sits there. And this court said that you can't just secure yourself a continuance from the deposition by filing a motion to quash. You have to actually take it up and get the order. Otherwise, you need to show up. So that's something to keep in mind if you do put a date on that deposition notice. And if you really need it, because sometimes trial is approaching fast and you need the deposition, uh, they can't just give themselves a continuance from the deposition by filing a, a bare motion without taking it up and getting an order on that motion. And so, Eric, kind of in conclusion, I think a corporate rep deposition is a very, very powerful tool. I think it's great help, just tremendous help in advancing your case. And it's one that should never, ever be uh, overlooked. All right. Well, that's the second of two episodes where we've discussed taking a deposition of the corporate representative. It's, as we said, a powerful tool. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you're tuning into this one without having listened to episode one, we invite you to go back and check out episode one. Thanks for joining us on this. We'll see you next time. This is Eric Beeth. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view, and Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.